If you have found Mark chapter 8, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Read from there down to verse 33. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Grass with us and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 27. <clears throat> And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you will strengthen brothers and sisters here. Strengthen brothers and sisters in Christ. Make us strong. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you will open the eyes of those that have been living blindly, not aware not thinking about God. And yet today, something, we pray that something would happen, that you would draw people by faith to Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. At 6,684 feet, Mount Mitchell is the highest peak in the state of North Carolina. More than that, it is not only the highest peak in the state of North Carolina, it is the highest peak east of the Mississippi. If you go there to go up to the top of Mount Mitchell, I suggest that you ride up there in your vehicle. There's a road that'll get you all the way to the top. But if you decide to take the trail, and I've done it, once. I don't ever plan on doing it again. Once. If you ever decide to take the trail, it is a trail with roots and rocks. It is not conducive to hiking. It's bad for your ankles. It is miles long. It'll take you hours to climb it. You get to the top, you break out of the canopy of trees, and there finally you're at the peak of Mount Mitchell. All you want to do is Sit down and look. Now, for 10 months, 10 months, we've been climbing. For 10 months, we've been on a trail, climbing the gospel of Mark. And the passage in front of us is like the canopy of trees has opened up. We have reached a peak. Mark chapter 8. We're going to stand up here a little while because once we get done with Mark chapter 8, we've got to turn around and go back down 
We'll go back down into the valley of the shadow of death and at the very bottom, we'll find the cross of Jesus. But today, today we're going to take a minute and be here on this peak. And we're going to hear all that Mark has to tell us about Jesus. It's what he's been doing all along. This is your first time in Hickory Grove. You've come in Mark chapter 8. We're, we've been doing this 10 months. You picked a good Sunday to start coming to Hickory Grove. I can give you a summary of 10 months. You don't have to sit through all of those sermons. Give you a summary of what Mark has been doing. He opens up Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, God speaks, God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Chapter 1, the demons speak, verse 24, and they identify Jesus, the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, they say, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, they say, Jesus, you are the Son of the Most High God. At the end of the book, at the end of Mark, when Jesus dies on a cross, he breathes his last. A Roman soldier will stand there and say, surely this was the Son of God. What Mark is doing is showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Mark takes us one step further up the hill. And he uses a question from Jesus. Jesus will ask the disciples two questions, but one of those questions is the most profound question that has ever been asked. That question becomes the very heart and the very heartbeat of Christianity. I'm going to use that question as my theme today. Who do you say Jesus Who do you? You're 13, 14 years old, you're a middle schooler. You're old enough to know. Who do you say he is? With that in mind, let's go back to the passage. Let's walk through like we've been doing. Make it like a Bible study. If you're a guest with us, just follow along. I'm just going to explain a few things from verse 27 to verse 23 or 33. Then we'll come back and try to make some applicational points, build a sermon off of what we have heard. Join me there. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. They're going to walk about 25 miles. Bethsaida is 25 miles away. That's where they started over in verse 22. They are walking along the way. 25 miles is a long way to go. A lot of you here, not a lot, some of you here have run some marathons, 26.2 or even further, ultra marathons. The long way to go. They're not doing it like you did it in hours. They're going to take several days and spend the night when they have to. But along the way, they're having conversations. And one of the conversations, Jesus asks a question. They come up to this town called Caesarea Philippi, named for Caesar and Herod Philip. He names one after himself, Philip, Philippi, but he decides, you know what, I better keep Caesar in here. He's the ball. So Caesarea Philippi is the name. It's a place where the Romans would worship a pagan god named Pan. All kinds of terrible things would go on there. And as, as they approach this region, Jesus asked the question, what does everybody say in verse 27 and 28? Who do people say that I am? So they start to answer the question. They say that some people think that you might be some people think that you might be John the Baptist. That's what Herod thought. 
Remember, he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, came back from the dead. That rumor still sort of rolling around. Some people think that you're Elijah because Micah had predicted that Elijah would come. Matthew tells us that some people think that you're Jeremiah or that you're one of the prophets. That's what the people are saying about you, Jesus. Then he directs the question, you'll follow along with me. In verse 29, he says to them, who do you? The systematic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all three have this emphatic you. Who do you? You're sitting in this pew right here. Who do you? Jesus asked the question, it's personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is the spokesman in verse 29 for the disciples, he says plainly, this is the great confession, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you are the anointed one. We've heard you teach, we've seen the miracles, we've watched you cast out demons, we know you're him. It's a great thing, it's the great confession. Matthew gives us the full confession. You are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Over in Matthew, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood did not give this to you. My Father in heaven has given this to you. It's a great confession. Verse 30, it's not full though, and so Jesus, it's always odd to me when Jesus does this, but in verse 30, Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody this. And then in verse 31, he opens up in a way he never has before. We've never seen the teaching in verse 31 up to this point. We've been doing this 10 months. We've been walking up this hill 10 months. Now finally, we're on the top of it. In verse 31, Jesus finally tells them, this is what's going to happen. Join me there, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days he will rise again. 31. So many things in 31. We're going to spend so much time in verse 31. This must happen. It's the Son of Man. That is a theological phrase. This must happen. And you'll notice the sequence of events. He will be rejected by the Sanhedrin, which is the scribes and the high priest and the elders. There's a promise at the bottom of verse 31, after being killed, he will be raised again. He will rise again. Verse 32, that is not sitting well with Peter. He's not talking in a metaphor. He's not using a parable. He's speaking plainly. He's giving doctrine right down the line. And as Peter listens to this in verse 32, he's shaking his head. You can see him do it. That is not what a Messiah does. That is not what a king does. So verse 32, in order to keep from embarrassing the boss, he pulls the rabbi aside, pulls him aside and says, look, let me, let me give you a correction. Can you imagine the audacity? Let me give you a little correction here, Jesus. He rebukes him. Verse 32 says he rebuked him. That's what Jesus did to Satan, rebuked him. Verse 32 and verse 33 tells us that the disciples are looking on. Peter thought he got out of earshot, but evidently he didn't. Verse 33 tells us Jesus turns and he looks at the disciples. He sees the other disciples watching what's happening here. And so he has to make a clear statement for them to hear it. So he turns and sees the other disciples. He speaks to Peter and he says, 
get behind me, Satan. Of all the things he could have said to Peter, Peter had just made the great confession. Jesus had just said to him, look, that's not my flesh and blood. That is from God the Father who gave that to you. And now Jesus called him Satan. Why? Because Peter is, Peter, Peter doesn't want to hear verse 31. Going to the cross. So Peter's chastising Jesus, talking about the cross. Jesus says, no, you're thinking like a man. You're thinking about, <coughs> you're thinking about the earth. You're, you're thinking about politics. You're thinking about countries and nations. You got to get your mind off of what's going on down here. Verse 33. Get your mind on what God is doing. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to, through it and see if we can learn some things. Here's the first one, number one. If you want to write down points, here's the first one, number one. <clears throat> number one, being positive about Jesus is not enough. Being positive about Jesus isn't enough. The text opens up. They're walking down the road. They're headed into a region called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked the question, what do the crowds, the anthropoi, what do people, what are the people that have been coming and seeing the, the miracles and they've heard the teaching, what are they saying about me? And everything the people say in verse 27 or 28 is positive. Even what Matthew tells us, he adds Jeremiah. So the people are saying you're John the Baptist or, or Elijah, which is a great thing to be. Micah says he's coming back. Or the prophet Jeremiah, who's thought so well of. You're one of the, you're not just a regular person. They are saying great things about you. Positive things. But being positive about Jesus is not enough. Other religions are positive about Jesus. All that's going on in the world right now with the Gaza Strip, Hamas, and Israel. We're seeing the riots that are breaking out in London and some in New York. And Islam is getting a lot of press right now. Islam, which is antithetical to Christianity, Islam says positive things about Jesus. He's a great prophet. A Buddhist will say positive things that Jesus is an enlightened guru. A Hindu will say that Jesus is a holy man. An irreligious person that's riding by and never wants to come to our church ever would say, yeah, Jesus is a good, good moral teacher. Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, known as Mormons, they even have his name, Jesus Christ, in their church name. They will say positive things about Jesus but that he was a spirit child of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, became a man, and then became a God. They'd go off the rails. Or, or Jehovah's Witness, when they come up your driveway, they are going to say positive things about Jesus, but not truthful things. You see, being positive about Jesus is not enough. You have to be clear. What is the, the clear teaching of the Bible? Is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel tells us that God, who is holy, created you in his image. You and I have fallen from that in our own sin, separated from God, and in mortal danger, standing under condemnation. And Jesus is the God-man. 
who comes and lives perfectly in a way that we never did or could, who comes and lives perfectly earning righteousness as a man, and then at the cross, he then takes the wrath of God, the wages of sin is death, Jesus dies in the place of sinners. The Bible says the account of the gospel is that God raised him from the dead three days later. He has ascended into heaven and he reigns as Lord. And the Bible teaches that any person here that will believe that, it's not enough to be positive about Jesus. We believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. As the Nicene Creed would say, is that he is God of very God. As the Apostles' Creed would say, he was born of a virgin. He was suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified in the place of sinners. He was dead and buried. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day, he will come as a conquering king for his church. But being positive, being positive about Jesus isn't enough. We've got to be clear. Let's make that the second point. Number two, let's make that the second point. Number two, being clear, clear on Jesus is a must. Join me there. You see the question is the most profound question. It's the one that has to be answered by everyone. Verse 29 and 30, <clears throat> he asked them, who do you, it's the emphatic you, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have it as you personally. Who do you? It is a direct question. It is one for every person sitting in every pew here in the balcony. Who do you say? Can't borrow it from your parents. It can't be that you went to a Christian school or you were raised in a Christian home. You. The question is direct, and Peter hears it as such. Peter is the spokesman for the disciples, and he speaks up. He is the leader of the disciples. Matthew tells us that Jesus asked the question, and, and, and Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. It's the great confession. Uh, several things to know about this confession. Number one, it is, it is clear it's important that we have the clear picture of who Jesus is. Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. That word Christ is the same as Messiah from the Old Testament. You are the one who is sent by God for salvation. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, Peter, that was not a statement out of flesh and blood. You didn't just come up with that in your head. God gave that to you. Go read the story, Matthew 16. The Father has given that to you. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Something happens in verse 30 that tells us about this understanding and your understanding of Jesus, and that is that it must be developed. When you say Jesus saved you from your sins, or Jesus is your Savior, or Jesus is Lord, what do you mean by that? And has that been developed in your life? I'm sure where I get that in verse 30 He's made the great confession, but Jesus tells them in verse 30, now look, do not tell this to anyone. You've got it. God gave it to you, but it is undeveloped as, as evidenced by Peter rebuking Jesus. 
They didn't have the whole story. So now, in verse 31, for the very first time, Jesus opens their eyes to see. Here's the third point, number three. We need the whole gospel. We need the whole gospel. We can't pause and stop and have these little truncated pictures of what the gospel is. We have to have a clear picture of the holiness of God, of our own sinfulness, our need for Christ, His atoning work on the cross, His victorious resurrection. We have to have the whole gospel. So what does Jesus do? In verse 31, He gives, the, for the very first time, He gives the whole gospel. And I want to use His phrases as an outline for it. You can just use that. Verse 31 becomes an outline for the gospel. Let's start with the first phrase he uses, the Son of Man. Join me there. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, Son of Man, is a theological phrase that Jesus uses 81 times in the three Gospels. He's the only one to use that phrase to describe who he is, Son of Man. He didn't just come up with that by himself. He reached over into the Old Testament in a picture of Daniel chapter 8 when Daniel has a vision of a man who is glorified through suffering and he calls him the Son of Man. Jesus reaches over and he takes that title and says, this is me, the Son of Man. It's his favorite title. Not only that, the text says that the Son of Man, the next word in the outline is must. He must. So look at that word must. That word must tells us that it is God's eternal plan, eternal plan from the foundation of the world. Please don't get in your mind that God created us and saw creation started to fall and everything went crazy and terrible and he had to figure out a way to save us. So this is what he's come up with. He came up with the cross. That is not Christianity. Christianity tells us from the very foundation of the world, as he created the world, the cross was there. There was his plan from the very beginning. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. This is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. When Peter's preaching, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed at the hands of evil men. The cross of Jesus Christ is no accident. It is part of the eternal plan of God to save you. So the Son of Man must, what must happen to the Son of Man? The Son of Man, here's the third phrase in the outline. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Suffer many things. Because you've suffered many things. The Son of Man as our representative suffered many things. How is he empathetic? He suffered many things. Paul says that he emptied himself of the glory of God. He suffered when he did that. He suffered when he was arrested and stood trial, a mock trial. Suffered. Suffered the humiliation of being stripped absolutely naked, whipped. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. You ever been embarrassed? Jesus is embarrassed for you. Suffered the beatings, suffered the abuse, 
Go read the story at the very end where they spat upon his face, suffered the mockings, the humiliation of having 12 disciples that come with you and one of them turns out to be a very devil himself. He's the one that betrays you. It's a story that, that comes all the way up to us to our day. Suffered the abandonment. Remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood and asking God the Father to take this cup of the sin of all humanity that will be saved, all of that sin, take that away. He suffered that sort of abandonment. Suffered the, the agony of crucifixion. It's what Isaiah 53 gives us, the song of the suffering servant. So for the very first time, the disciples are hearing that the Son of Man must suffer many things. You have said, I am Messiah and Christ, and it's true, but let me open the door a little further for you. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And not only that, if you build the, the outline of the gospel, you have the next phrase. The Son of Man must be rejected. Rejected by who? Those are the lawmakers of the day. You'll see it there in verse 31. Rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes who wrote down the law. All three of them would make up what is known as the Sanhedrin of the day. The lawmakers are going to reject me. Why is Jesus rejected by the lawmakers? Do you know the world that we live in right now? What it means to be a Christian? And how the, even the nation we live in has gone off the cliff. And for you to just to say you're a Christian and the things you believe as a Christian, you are rejected. Just recently, a, a Christian man has been elected to the House of Representatives. He is a Christian just like me and you. He believes the same things we believe. And he's being skewered because of that. Rejected, you see. Why was the Son of Man rejected? Because you and I will be rejected. He says to Peter and the disciples, the Son of Man must be, he must suffer many things and be rejected. Next phrase, and be killed. Look at it, look at it. The wages of sin is death. Killed. What do we deserve because of our breaking of God's law? It is death. The wages of sin is death. Read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers Deuteronomy, I'm in that in my devotional life right now. And sometimes God's wrath breaks out and people die because they were sinners. You've got in your mind, Peter, what it means to be a Christ, a Messiah. Let me tell you what the Son of Man must do. This must happen to the Son of Man. He's going to suffer many things and be rejected and killed. He's going to go to the cross. Here is the one who never sinned, taking the punishment for all sinners. To have Jesus die in my place. Here, here is the gospel. Here is why Jesus came. Why do we preach the things that we do? Why do we, why do we think through who Jesus is? What is Mark telling us? He's telling us who Jesus is and why he came. So the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must go to the cross. And then the very last thing in verse 31, what must happen he must rise again three days. Why is the resurrection necessary? Why can't it just be that Jesus was a great teacher and died and was killed? 
because we believe in one who died in our place and was raised. This is why we go to church on Sundays, because Jesus was raised on the third day. What does the resurrection promise us? It tells us that God has received the sacrifice of Jesus and our sins are forgiven. We are accepted. This is why you can go through what you've been through and have hope. This is why when we have a Christian funeral, when we talk about being a Christian, when you die in the faith, we believe that one day you will rise in the faith. We believe that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, God raised him from the dead, he has ascended into heaven and will one day come as a reigning king. So Jesus gives them an outline of what the Christ will be. Well, Peter's not having it. He's never heard anything like this. This makes absolutely no sense to Peter. So what happens in verse 32 and 33 is astounding. I'll make a fourth point out of it. Number four. The Lord disciplines those he loves. If God loves you, he disciplines you. I'll say sometimes I feel like I am the Lord's favorite because of the discipline I am receiving. Verse 32 and 33 are, are, is Jesus disciplining. Verse 32 tells us that he has spoke plainly. It's not a parable. It is not a metaphor. It is not a simile. He has given doctrine. He speaks as clearly and as plainly as he can on what it looks like for the gospel to happen. Verse 31. Verse 32, Peter doesn't want to embarrass the boss, so he pulls him aside. Verse 32, he, he, he gives a rebuke. Jesus, you, have you not read the Old Testament? You, don't, you must not know what the Christ is to be. And so Peter is saying this, and it turns out that they're within earshot of the other disciples. Jesus, verse 33, Jesus sees the other disciples listening to what Peter is saying to him. So Jesus turns the table. Verse 33 is the most, most discouraging, most hurtful. Jesus says to Peter, who has just made the great confession, get behind me, Satan. Because verse 31, Peter, Peter has just heard Jesus lay out what salvation and how it will happen through the cross, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, he must be rejected, he must be killed, he will be raised again. There's the gospel, and Peter says, no. And Jesus says, you sound just like Satan. This is what Satan tried to get me to do back in the early part of the ministry. Remember in the desert and Satan tempted Jesus he could have glory without going to the cross? This is just like what Satan said. To have rule without the cross. That's not why I've come. Now we're standing on the mountain right now, but we're going to descend down to the cross. Peter, that's human thinking. You're thinking like a politician. That's not how we think. You need to be thinking like, what is God? What is God doing here? The very next verse, verse 34, was Jesus will start talking about the cross, taking up the cross. Now Jesus, Jesus clearly, Jesus clearly loved Peter. 
And he completely corrected Peter. Peter, get your mind on the things of God, not the things here on earth. What are the things of God? The things of God are the gospel. The gospel of Jesus that saves you. Brothers and sisters, be strengthened in the gospel. If you're not a brother or sister in Christ, you've heard the gospel, you can become one by faith in Christ. What are the things of God? God growing you through your difficulty, through the hardship, through you taking in the, the word of God, through worship, through your life circumstance, our sovereign God growing you into Christ-likeness. What are the things of God? Things of God reaching our community. Man, we saw a little picture of our community yesterday, a little picture. God put us here at this time and point in history to reach the community with the love of God that comes through Jesus Christ. What are the things of God? The things of God are our eternal hope in Christ. We are not, look, look, don't, don't get depressed and panic-stricken by what's going on in the world because this world is not our home. Our eternal hope is in Christ and his kingdom, and we live for another king, King Jesus. Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? How you answer that question determines everything. With that in mind, I want you to join me now. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed just for a moment. We're going to sing another song, and as we do, I want to give an invitation. This morning, you've heard for the first time, your eyes have been opened, and you want Jesus. You want to be part of his kingdom. You want to give your life to Jesus. When we sing, I'll invite you just to come forward. Just walk down the aisle, down, down into the front. Our pastors are here. We'll pray with you. Talk to you about what it means to give your life to Christ. There are others of you, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're already you're a Christian, and you, you just sense the need to be strengthened. God has spoken to your heart. You want to be strengthened in the Lord. You want somebody to pray with you, or you want to just come and pray just for your own life. Ask God to help you. Or, or maybe you have someone in mind. You... As I was preaching, you were thinking about that person. You want to just come this morning and, and ask God to, to do what he did in Peter's life. Just to give him something that's not flesh and blood, but from God. To change your hearts. God has worked in your heart this morning. You want to come and pray when we sing. I want to invite you to do so. Father, thank you for the word that is good. Thank you for your spirit that sustains. Thank you for your grace that is real and forgiveness that changes us. We lift this time to you. Lord, we, we ask you to find us faithful as a church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?